0: So who is your best friend? Your mate? Your mom? Maybe it's the planet we live on. And let's face it, we haven't been treating our best friend, planet Earth, very well. And if COP26 accomplished anything, it was to just churn up a lot of talk without a lot of definitive action. Enter two people who have a vision for what the future can be, how we can save the planet, and how we can move forward with artificial intelligence in a very enlightened way. Brett King and Richard Petty with a brand new book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI and Climate Will Usher in a New World. You're going to hear all about it here on Dave and Darm Demystify.
1: From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. (laughs) and Darm Demystify show, making a sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery.
2: Demystify. Welcome everybody to today's show. And today we have Brett King and Richard Petty to talk about their new book, Techno Socialism so brett i guess everybody knows you but would you mind for the very few who are out there just giving an introduction and richard that would be fantastic as well and then we can
0: get into the story i'm gonna start calling myself a philosopher futurist <laughs> but uh based <laughs> on the book well, but now i started in the technology arena obviously started as a bite ripper a coda many years ago and ended up in in an arena translating technology into business speak and vice versa and that led to eventually after many years of working in the trenches on the internet and digitization i'm starting to write about the changes that technology would have impacting the world
3: and here i am today fantastic richard we'd love to hear about you
4: Thanks, Damesh. Dave, great to be on your show. I've got a background as an academic and entrepreneur. I started a company in Sydney in the 1980s. That grew and I took it to Hong Kong and I've been in Hong Kong for close to 30 years. Well, Hong Kong and Greater China. I've got a background in accounting and finance, PhD in that field, and been a professor at various universities around the world for close to 30 years. And I serve time on various boards, listed company boards and private company boards around the world.
2: Cool. Fantastic.
4: I write books with bread in my spare time. Ah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) well the pair of
0: you have just written a book the rise of techno socialism how inequality ai and climate will usher in a new world there
3: you go fantastic Fantastic. how did you get to this book in the first place because everything's really been about banking so far and this goes beyond that remit doesn't it
0: Yeah, you know, I think Rich and I've been talking for a long time about collaborating on a project like this. And I had the idea for this book basically from Augmented, which I wrote in 2015. Augmented describes how we personally will deal with technology in our lives, right? You know, increasing technology, AI and all of that. But then the obvious question was, well, how is society going to adapt to these changes? And so Richard and I, got together in sydney on a whiteboard and started this project i think it must be like three four years ago now and you know we've been building since then including having to rewrite the book you know, as a result of the pandemic but that's how it got started maybe rich you want to talk about the whiteboard session we had and how that evolved into the four quadrants that we came up with
4: i recall the first conversation as being in a coffee shop in new york And I think at that time, you'd express the desire to go wider and broader than augmented. And we had a great conversation about areas of mutual interest and knowledge. And then we just built it from there. And at that time, I think we were talking Faldistan, Luddistan, maybe, but these were vague and then devolved over many, many conversations and many, many cups of coffee.
2: Obviously, there's big things through the rise of technology, through things like artificial intelligence, but there's other mega trends which are kind of happening the pandemic is a great example of something which you know had a catastrophic impact on the global economy but here we sit with cop 26 going on in right glasgow at this moment so we know that climate change is one of those things which is going to be more and more pressing as time goes on. So what are the core things that you've written about?
0: You mentioned two of them. You know, we talk about socioeconomic stresses, right? And so inequality, which was accentuated during the pandemic, the pandemic and potentially future pandemics, we identify that as a possibility because of the potential viruses, ancient viruses being released from glacial melt, actually, as a result of climate change. But the other one is artificial intelligence, because of the way it sort of reshapes our economies, in particular, labor participation.
2: If we pick something like the pandemics and how technology and social activity relates to that, you know, what are some of your hypotheses that you're developing around that particular subject?
0: Again, we had to rewrite the book when the pandemic hit, but it wasn't because it changed the theory or changed the outcomes. It accelerated those stresses, right? So it created greater economic uncertainty. So if you look at all of those things we just mentioned, pandemics, AI, climate change, and of course, inequality, which was where it sort of started in many respects, each of those create increasing economic uncertainty about the future. To illustrate, you know, one of the stories we tell in the book is the death of the American dream or the loss of the American dream. You know, if you look at America in the 1950s through early 1970s, you had this great economic activity where if you worked hard and you saved and you participated wholeheartedly in the economy because of the growing middle class and the growth of the economy, then you could guarantee your children would have had a better life in the future. That's sort of the American dream. But that's no longer the case because of the stratification of wealth in society and particularly things like in the UK and the US, lack of wage growth through from the 1980s, prices still go up. So your purchase power reduces over time, you know, housing becomes a larger component of your salary in terms of expenditure, you just have less money to work with. Then at the top of the economic pyramid, you've got people making huge amounts of money off the stock market and off crypto and all these sorts of things. So you get this increasing stratification. And that economic uncertainty presents itself in respect to things like protests that have increased 200% in frequency and 1000% in participation just over the last 20 years compared with, you know, the 20th century as an example. So people are feeling this pressure, but there's no Solution on the horizon for inequality. We hear a lot of people talking about this disparity between the rich and the poor. the billionaires are making and so forth. Who's going to be the first trillionaire, which we talk about in the book, but no one's really saying this is fundamentally how we change our economic systems to address this.
2: I think the more that you kind of look into those economic systems, I guess the more you can see that they're not really fit for purpose in a kind of warming world. So going back to people in the US or the UK, this other mega trend of artificial intelligence comes in. So suddenly people who are in work find themselves out of work. So we're all technology lovers and we love the idea of automatic cars and vehicles. But when you kind of actually boil down what might happen once truck drivers are no longer needed, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of truck drivers in the uk and the us you're suddenly going what on earth are these people going to end up doing i mean i guess just as an example of the impact of technology but then as i say taking it more broadly into what needs to happen in terms of climate change it's kind of fascinating that the way we are as a society is probably not fit for purpose eh?
0: one thing that should be obvious to everybody is the purpose of ai is to eliminate humans from the workforce That's always been the purpose of artificial intelligence. Over the next few decades, we're going to have to deal with the fact that the concept that you work and you get money and that enables you to live will break down because of artificial intelligence. And that's what I don't think a lot of people understand. A lot of people talk about the fact, yes, but AI is going to create all of these new jobs. No, the purpose of AI is to remove humans from the workforce. It always has been. Rich, you want to jump in?
4: Yeah, I think that's a great point that Brits just made. The other interesting thing about delaying the book because of the pandemic, it ended up being necessary, but also really interesting in terms of observing what we thought might happen, but that was happening right before us. The pace of change was speeding up, urgency increasing, not decreasing for change, of course. And then if we look at the short-term impact, which is easier to assess and predict than the long-term, the accelerated adoption of, for example, working from home technologies is one clear indicator of where we're headed in terms of what the impact might be on productivity and labour and labour movements and investment cycles that wouldn't have been there that people weren't predicting five years ago. Or if they were looking at it, the rate of change was a very different curve to the one we're now observing.
0: And a powerful impact on the climate as well when people started working from home, right?
4: Yeah, big impact.
2: It's kind of... Fascinating to see how the way we work could change overnight and in a way the world carried on and people found themselves more in control of things. What that's then ushered in is what I can see in London is nobody's going to go back to the old way of doing things. We all spent the last 20 years flying around in aeroplanes and I've been on one plane to the Ars of Scilly which took 20 minutes but that's the only flight I've taken in the last two years and you can kind of see that As you say, Richard, I mean, it's just ushered in something
0: new. Not to mention the fact that, you know, before the pandemic, everyone was saying how ridiculous it was to think about a concept like universal basic income. And then we had all these stimulus payments to keep the economy going. And so (laughs) suddenly we had a very good business case or illustration for potential for UBI as a mechanism to soften the impact of the change around AI,
3: for example. I always hear these stories about AI and, you know, the death of jobs and blah, blah, blah. But is it actually a bad thing if you didn't have to work or you just had to work like two hours a day? Is that a bad thing?
0: I don't think so. That's what we argue in the book. (laughs) you know, when you don't have to work, but you have subsistence in some form, you end up still working, but you end up doing things you're passionate about. For example, the UBI trials, and we looked at about 70 different UBI trials around the world in the research for this book. And, you know, there's an economic view of this versus in practice what happened, but higher percentages of entrepreneurship emerged. So more people starting their own business than what you'd see in a sample of the normal population, more people involved in social activities community-based activities and things like that so when you don't have to work you get to do what you really feel strongly and passionately about instead of having to do a job that puts food on the table that you might not necessarily enjoy right
4: yeah the risk would be if you emancipate people from doing the things they don't really want to do and they don't derive a lot of satisfaction from but it keeps them busy and it keeps them occupied day to day and it gives them a sense of purpose and you don't replace that with some other sense of purpose so if you rob them of the productivity at a personal level and the feeling that they're making a contribution and hopefully the reality that they're making a contribution then that would be dangerous because that's when you're going to see massive dysfunction people turning to other avenues for fulfillment and many of those very likely wouldn't be happy avenues for society so The challenge will be as AI becomes more prevalent, finding ways to purposefully occupy people and ensure that they're doing things they really enjoy and things that are good for society as a whole.
0: So one of the areas that we specifically focus on in the book is addressing climate. Right? and so climate mitigation i mean this is going to be something that we project in the book up to 60 percent of gdp could eventually be deployed upon and so we're talking about geoengineering the planet we're talking about building seawall defenses around cities that are going to be flooded by sea level rise carbon extraction carbon sequestration technologies building climate resilience into our infrastructure you know retooling energy grids you know climate will end up being the largest employer on the planet probably you know for the second half of this century but that's that's a key area where obviously people can do. In fact, there's a couple of proposals we put in the book and I'll let Rich talk about some of these later as well. But one of the proposals we make is maybe you require some form of national service involved in climate change activities, for example, before you qualify for something like a UBI.
3: That's a great idea. I love that national service for saving the planet. I mean, it should be done now, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And I guess that
2: brings us to the fact that there's the word socialism in the title of the book, which sort of feels like a cry towards levelling up and, you know, that notion of kind of working together. You know, if you look at the state of politics in the UK or particularly in the US, well, I mean, the UK is probably quite socialistic in many ways, but certainly the US is pretty far away from that socialist principle. So... Anyone who kind of looks at the pandemic can see that the way the East has dealt with the pandemic is very different from the way the West has dealt with the pandemic. Yeah. So. I mean, it feels that the book is leaning more towards the Eastern way of doing things.
0: Well, we say at the outset of the book, that it's not a political statement, but I'm sure there's many who have read the title of the book and assumed it's political. But the book is unashamedly right-wing when it comes to economics and unashamedly left-wing when it comes to social causes. Now, those two things often clash and there's no middle ground. But the real beauty of what we talk about in techno-socialism is the high levels of automated society, will naturally reduce the size of government and the core infrastructure around the way the economy caters for the basic needs of citizens. And so you get this small government with smaller budgets, being able to provide much better basic services for the citizens. And we argue that should be the primary function of the economy, first and foremost, before we start talking about things like GDP growth and trade balances and those sort of things. That's what's possible with a highly automated society. So it really requires resetting our thinking around the whole political divisions that we have.
4: Yeah, the thing to remember is that regardless of where a country sits on the political spectrum and indeed regardless of where an individual might be in their own thinking about politics, the changes and the challenges aren't going away. They're not going to disappear. AI will happen. Other technologies will happen and accelerate in terms of their use and their prevalence and their impact on countries and on individuals. Climate change is happening. Those challenges remain for everybody. So the politics has to be removed from the equation to some degree. It goes to people's views on a whole range of things and to funding, perhaps, and thoughts around what gets funded and what doesn't. But the challenges and the change are going to be the same for everybody.
2: If you think about the knock-on impacts of all of this, like you talk about mass migration as well. Yeah. I mean, I read a very interesting essay in The Times about the population of sub-Saharan Africa, which is young and growing, basically, and... The sort of pressure that will be on those people as the world warms to move and it's just going to be incredible how does the world deal with all of this stuff
0: well there's various projections on that but the projections range by 2050 from 300 million to a billion eco refugees either displaced by sea level rise or by food scarcity as a result of global warming changing food production patterns but there are estimates today that between 25 and 65 million eco-refugees are already roaming the planet or being displaced. And so these numbers are not particularly unbelievable. But then if you think about the Syrian civil war crisis and the impact of 5 million refugees on the system, particularly in Europe, then talk about a billion, it's a completely different concept. For one, you can't close the borders to a billion eco-refugees, it's impossible. So then if you decide just to ignore the problem, what do you have, a billion deaths? I mean, the scale of this is so great that it requires a very different sort of thinking in terms of systemic approaches to solving these problems, including, you know, how we accommodate or get a billion people enough food to keep living under these conditions.
3: So the geography boundaries change, but clearly the political boundaries will have to change as well.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, correct. And the other point to note there is that globalization has been a driving force for decades now. And the idea of shared boundaries and the shared planet has become more and more prevalent. So on an optimistic note, there is increasingly evidence that people understand we're all in this together. And you know the outcome of that, the implications of that are that it doesn't matter how much money you've got and how protected you might feel you're able to make yourself with some of these challenges and some of the crises, particularly climate change and migration happening, it's going to be increasingly hard for people to lock themselves away and not be part of the world in which these challenges have poised upon us. Take just recently Elon Musk's commitment where he said, provided the right evidence could be provided or given by the UN, he'd give $6 million to help end global hunger. It's an incredible gesture, and it's got a qualifier or a rider attached to it. But I think what we're seeing is increasingly there's a sense among the very rich that the wealth inequality isn't helpful for anybody, including them. And among some of them, a sense of fear about what might happen, not just to humanity, but to themselves, if these trends continue without being addressed.
2: I mean, it's really interesting you mentioned that Elon Musk tweet, because I guess if He could take it another way and just saying he was being very, very flippant. There's no way that the UN can kind of give him what he needs, basically, because it's a very complex problem.
4: I suppose I read it as he's looking for accountability. And if the accountability is there in terms of what the impact of the spend might be, then he's prepared to invest the money in solving the problem. So let's assume the intent is pure. And if we assume that, it's fantastic.
2: Well, if I could advise him, I'd say, look, spend 100000 of your dollars to look at building up some accountability and help the UN out.
0: One area that may be counterintuitive in today's world, you know, this is one of the projections that I have a lot of fun with when talking about this, but around immigration particularly. One of the trends we note in the book is that populations are declining in many modern economies. When you have affluence, you tend to get, you know, birth rates declining, right? also with the economic uncertainty people are less happy to have children and bring them into a world where they feel that the economy is economics are challenging And so, you know, Italy is already in negative population growth, Japan and so forth. China will reach that point by the end of this decade, the US, the decade after the UK, you know, in the early 2030s, most likely will stop growing. And so if you want growth in your economy, you need new consumers. And so one of the things that ironically is going to become a competitive feature where economies are competing against each other is to attract immigrants and not just immigrants with high skills but any immigrants so if you think about brexit and the big driver behind you know the immigration issue there i mean in 20 years that's going to completely flip on its head because economies are going to need inward migration to keep their economies growing
2: i think the uk is a very interesting example of what happens when you turn off that immigration tap frankly and again i don't want to get into the politics of it but For example, my wife works in a care home with old people and they cannot get the staff they need to provide the care that they need. And actually, she's one of, I think, a couple of English people who are working in the home. The rest of the staff are amazing people from Africa and the Caribbean. And, you know, there's very few European people there, which up until 18 months ago, we would have had. And to that point, without immigration, Nation states can really falter around all of this stuff. You know, I was kind of keen to pick up on you mentioned it right at the start about the quadrants, the Ludistan, the Feldistan. We've talked about techno socialism, but also neo feudalism as well. So, could you expand on those at all and just explain what those are all
4: about?
0: Rich, you want to have a shot at that or you want me to cover it?
4: I'll let you go.
0: <laughs> you have a right. All right. Okay. So, We actually sat on the whiteboard and we thought, how do we classify these different paths to the future? We know there's certain outcomes coming. So one of the biggest issues around inequality is essentially inclusion. So financial inclusion, digital inclusion, all of these things that contribute to this. So on one axis of the magic quadrant, we put inclusiveness and collectivism. So a collective response to climate, as an example, there's no such thing as a national climate change policy. If Britain has the best climate change policy and climate action in the world and Germany you know, has the worst, you know, it doesn't work, right? So inclusion on one end of the spectrum and on the other exclusionary practices or, you know, the emphasis of individualism, right? And then we have on a future map, chaotic futures versus planned futures. So that gives you the framework for those four outcomes. Now, all of these four outcomes will be happening simultaneously in different jurisdictions, but we talk about why we believe Techno-socialism is the optimal. So in the inclusive chaotic, you have where humanity decides that not having humans work, that AI disrupting that is bad because humans need to work because they need to get paid. And this would be in an environment, for example, where something like UBI is just not socially acceptable or politically acceptable. And so refusal to adopt universal basic income would lead to riots and the social fabric and cohesion collapsing. And so you ban AI so that no AIs are going to take human jobs. So this is the anti-science, anti-tech route, which we call Lattice 10, right? now uh, you know where we get that name from, the Lattice, right? The other quadrant, the exclusionary chaotic, is where we talk about essentially we just waited too long you know so when it comes to climate change when it comes to AI we kept arguing about what was going to happen and debating what might happen rather than planning for it so by the time AI really starts to impact employment by the time climate really starts to impact sea level rise and things like that it's too late and we have a lot of failed states you know as a result of that Bangladesh you know, underwater, Maldives, 80% of the infrastructure affected by climate, you know, these sorts of things. And so, you know, we just left it too late. Then on the planned futures, we have, again, two sides. The exclusionary one where we sort of bake in future inequality, where we don't fix the core economic problems and the design flaws in capitalism, is you get neo-feudalism, where corporations set policies. So, Fossil fuel companies are sponsoring laws through politicians that encourage the longevity of fossil fuels rather than shifting to green technologies, as an example. And, you know, when it comes to new technologies like longevity treatments, where, you know, you can live longer, that's only available to the rich. Gene therapy only available to the rich. The inequality sort of gets baked in for the next 50, 100 years. So that's the neo-feudalism. The other is techno-socialism, where we use technology to say, let's provide a basic quality of life, a basic standard of living to everybody in our economy. And the economy first and foremost should prioritize that and then let's look at the collective problems that humanity faces and by pushing towards solving those problems we'll provide a sustainable economy that provides prosperity for all over time but we do that through dramatically reducing the cost of governance and better resource allocation with the use of artificial intelligence
3: is china closest to techno-socialism i mean given everything that's going on in china in terms of you know their five-year plans the fact that they want to create a digital infrastructure for everybody, not just for China, that they want to level the playing field for everybody. I mean, it sounds to me like they're on the path to the holy grail. It's definitely rich.
4: Yeah, China is way ahead in many areas. And part of that is that they have, as you've noted, a very long planning cycle. So they're not beholden to short-term politics in the way that some other nations are. And they're not beholden, frankly, to a 24-hour for a 20-minute media cycle that demands answers on questions that have a 50- and a 100-year horizon. So the five-year plans are just the start of it, but it's a fully integrated planning system as to where they're going to take the economy. They've got really well-articulated, long-range plans for what's going to happen in terms of developing the domestic economy and domestic consumption, along with the producer economy. So it's important to note that just during the last 10 years, for example, China's gone from becoming primarily a producer economy to now being a producer and a consumer economy so they can keep it all happening within borders if they need to in a way that they just couldn't 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago. They've got a digital plan. They've got a plan for advanced manufacturing and technology. They've got an education plan. They've got tens of thousands of doctoral students in STEM programs and if you're talking about a future in which AI is going to be dominant, it's going to very likely be the docs and the postdocs from STEM programs yes. that will be driving that future. And then, of course, there's a whole creative dimension to that. So there's, there's a real need for people with great creative talent, but a lot of other people are going to get squeezed out. In fact, we looked at smart cities and we debated whether we should put Shenzhen or Singapore in as an exemplar of a smart city because both are really leading the way in in many respects. But yeah, China's ahead of us in a lot of ways. I mean, take central bank digital currency, right? (laughs) just as one. I think 2013, 2014, it's being discussed, then it's developed. Then in 2017, 2018, it's rolled out in trials in various cities, and it's ready to go. Whereas in the US, there's Project Hamilton, which has been around for a couple of years, which I think is a joint initiative between the folks at MIT and the Federal Reserve, which intends to look at what the impact of a CBDC might be on the US economy and then take it from there. So you've got a couple of years of discussion, very likely, yeah. and then you've got white papers and then you've got further discussion and then you've got years. How many years before the US matches where China's at in terms of a central bank digital currency? Setting aside the regulatory dimensions to that. Yeah. So, yeah, China's ahead in many ways, and a lot of people don't realize it. But of course, we live there and we spent decades being immersed in that. So, we've got a real feel for how that's happening.
3: We just announced that there's going to be a consultation paper on CBDCs next year. We can have another chat about it. Just going back to China, I mean, the other thing that I find quite compelling on what the Chinese is doing is that it seems very purpose driven right? Like the whole ethics of what they're trying to achieve, you can't really argue with. Whereas, you know, I think what we see in other places, you know, I'll say the US and the UK is that politicians are very self-serving, you know, everything that helps their own causes or benefits them, you know, more so than what saves the planet and brings equality. So is that fair to say that that's actually happening?
0: Absolutely. Do you know how many countries have AI regulation around the ethics of artificial intelligence? One, China, right? From grade school up, they're teaching kids about deep learning, machine learning tech now. I mean, if you wanna look at a classic template for a 21st century economy based on artificial intelligence and you know greening tech and things like that, China's certainly in terms of pure economics, one of the best examples, the Belt and Road Initiative, CBDC, which could overlay on that in terms of trade, all of those things, they really are becoming digital ready as an entire economy. Whereas we still have, as recently as Trump's election, prior to that with the primaries, you know, Republicans talking about bringing big coal back, right, you know, which is crazy that that's even being discussed. Instead of saying, how do we transition, on that. Now, China definitely has energy problems in the market right now, but they've deployed 256 gigawatts of solar in the last eight years. That compares with 60 gigawatts of solar that the U.S. has deployed over 40 years. Their decision to get rid of Bitcoin mining in the country was largely dictated by energy issues there. So, They are clearly thinking much longer term about this. China has the advantage of not having to have a political debate, though. We're not suggesting autocracy is the best form of government, but, you know, they don't have to reach consensus on this stuff. Obviously, they are impacted somewhat by sentiment in the market. We saw that, for example, in Beijing when... The air quality deteriorated significantly. They responded to a sentiment on that, but it took a little bit of pushing. But clearly the consensus issue is also advantageous for them in purely executing on policy.
2: Definitely. So we're going to have to draw things to a close. One final question from me, Brett, Richard is who is the one person that each of you would like to read this book? Have you got someone on your hit list who you just think you need to read this?
0: Elon Musk. Because I think he would go, oh, yeah, I get this. What can I do to help? I mean, I'm a big fan of Elon, so maybe I'm biased in that. You know, and he's also got resources that could be applied to it. I don't know, maybe Obama. What do you think, Rich?
4: Michelle Obama, perhaps. Oprah, yeah. <laughs> Oprah. Oprah the Oprah book club, <laughs> they, That'd be good. Uh, You know, really any senior policymaker, whether they be in China, the US, or anywhere else, and anyone who's interested in the issues and having a discussion around the big issues. We make the point in the book that we don't claim that we've got all the answers. We don't claim that we have even a small portion of the answers. What we're hoping is to frame the debate in a particular way and the discussion and bring about meaningful dialogue so that we can all evolve.
2: Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for joining us. The book is released, I believe, on November the
0: 21st. Global release, correct.
2: And
3: it can be pre-ordered now,
2: right?
0: yes please if you're listening to this please pre-order particularly if you can go to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com and pre-order from there and get it shipped from there reason being is we think we've got a shot at the new york times list with this book and every order that comes from those vehicles gets us closer to that goal so if you wouldn't mind pretty please
2: great
3: christmas present
0: exactly damish exactly yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank you guys it's been fantastic fantastic And that's the rise of techno-socialism.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD+, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.